Hi, my name's Jackie, and I'm an alcoholic. Jackie. All right, this is for shorter people, so let me. All right, uh, my sobriety date is uh, February 19th, 1990, and I'm grateful to be a mer uh, member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a sponsor here, and she has a sponsor, and that sponsor has a sponsor, and that sponsor has a sponsor. And, um, you know, I, it's a strong lineage of women that I was brought up in. It's, I'm very proud to be part of that lineage. They, uh, they uh, um, promote service at, uh, in a way that I've never seen before. And uh, I always admire the women that I'm surrounded with. I have friends here tonight that I love dearly, just dearly, all of, you know, people in my life. I'm very grateful. Um, I uh, really liked the birthdays. I really loved the energy that was in the birthdays. I love birthdays. I appreciate, especially appreciated uh, Chris's 30-day energy. 30 days is a phenomenally long period of time not to drink. I don't know about you, but 30 days, I, I, you know, I was trying for 24 hours at one point, you know, and um, so... I, my sponsor always tells me that I, I love speaker meetings, except for when I'm doing it. I hate it when I'm doing it. Um, but my sponsor always tells me, you know, it's God's will, and if things go bad, just blame him. So if you don't like what I say, just, you know, blame God. Don't come talk to me about it. Just talk to him about it. But, um, you know, I'd like to welcome the newcomers. Um, there was quite a few, and I love that it was mostly women and, like, two guys. It was, like, all women and two guys. Um, you know, and I understand that because uh, it's a little harder for women. We break down a little bit faster and things get a little bit worse for us. And I, I kind of feel like our consequences are a little deeper because usually they take the kids from us, you know, or, you know, and I understand that. And um, I'd like to talk to the newcomer tonight because every person in this room knows exactly how you feel. Every person, at least I do, I know exactly how you feel sitting in this room, listening to people, not sure what the heck is going on. Uh, how this can even help, how it's going to change anything, uh, but it does. And if I cannot drink, you cannot drink. There's nothing extraordinary about me, nothing. I do the same thing I did when I got here, you know, um, and I, I don't have any superpowers, you know, nothing. I just did what I was, I was willing to do, what I was asked to do, and I got honest about who I was, and that you know, is what made it. And I was taught when you get here that there's two parts to this program. There's the steps and the fellowship. The fellowship will carry you, and the steps will change you and keep you sober. And if you're not doing both, then you're not working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I was taught. So um, I had a friend last couple weeks ago who spoke, and he said something really kind of cool, and my friend Max, who I love a lot. And he said that a lot of times what we say is what it was like what happened and what it's like now, but he said that the word should be what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And I could really relate to that. Uh, there's a page in the big book, and I'm, I'm not good at quoting the big book, I always have to kind of read it, because uh, I know these people who, you know, like, I, page 52, second paragraph, third line down. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, okay, sure, but, you know. Um, so there's this page on page 52, Second paragraph, um, there's this section called the bedevilments, and it talks about the bedevilments. And if you're new here, this is what I was like when I got here. And it talks about we're having trouble with personal relationships, we can't control our emotional natures, we're a prey to misery and depression, we can't make a living, we have a feeling of uselessness, we're full of fear, and we're unhappy. We couldn't even be of real help to other people. 
That's the bedevilments, and that's what I was like before I got here. I was completely confused, running on sheer fear, had no idea what was going on. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd light a cigarette, and I'd wonder where the hell my kid was. And I'd wonder where my car was. And there'd be this moment of anxiety right before I started smoking that cigarette, and I'd have to think about what happened. And, um, you know, I particularly enjoyed blackouts. I liked it. It was like a little mini vacation for me. There is no reason to tell anyone what they did in a blackout. There is no reason for that. <laughs> I don't want to know. But every once in a while, it would seep in into my consciousness, and I'd have flashes of what went down. And I'd think to myself, let's just push past that. Let's just, you know, let's not talk about that. And what I noticed is in my blackouts, I had become somewhat violent. And I'm not even sure where it came from. It just started, you know. Um, so that had started happening. And that kind of added to the fear and confusion that I experienced. And I started uh, going to school at San Diego State. I was in undergrad school down at San Diego State. And um, I was working in a restaurant. and. I had a, a, a young daughter. Uh, she was very young at the time. She was maybe like four or five, and this part always makes me so sad. But um, she'd come up to me, and she said, you know what, Mom, I just can't live here anymore. I can't live with you anymore. It's too much for me. She's like three or four, and she's saying these things to me. And I'm thinking, what went down that a three- or four-year-old is saying that to me? You know. And I had this slight moment of clarity. Now, a moment of clarity is when you know everything to be true, that you denied forever is suddenly real to you. And what I decided was I was just going to press past that. I wasn't going to let that stop me. But it got me, it was there. It was nestled in my brain. And um, so, you know, here I had this young daughter. I was working in a restaurant, going to undergrad. It wasn't easy, you know, by any means. And I was drinking alcoholically, obviously. And um, I had stopped eating regular meals because I was getting a little heavy, and I switched from vodka to gin, because gin has a few less calories in it. And um, I didn't like gin, but I drank it anyway. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. You're just going to do what you're going to do. And um, I had just, you know, I was peeing blood pretty regularly, and the doctor would be like, I can't figure this out. I'd be like, I don't know. You know, what the heck? You know, I was never honest about my alcoholism or the amount that I was drinking. And, uh, they'd take blood tests, and they'd be like, you have quite a bit of alcohol in your system. I'm like, oh, that was from last night, whatever. You know, I didn't really want to. I just didn't do whatever it is that I needed to do. I just didn't. And um, I was driving home on PCH, and I had to use the restroom, so I pulled over to what I thought was an inconspicuous spot on the freeway and um, used the side of the freeway as the restroom. And... I got back in my car, and there was a cop, like, sitting right behind my car waiting for me. And I'm like, he didn't even stop me from, like, peeing in front of him. He just, like, waited until I was done, which was nice, you know. I mean, I... So they arrested me for uh, driving under the influence. This was back in the day, so the consequences weren't too severe. Um, but um, all I thought about in that holding tank, they hold you for, like, four hours, and then they let you go. All I thought about in that holding tank is there was a toilet in the middle of the cell. And I didn't think about, like, oh, my God, my drinking has got me a UD. I didn't think about any. All I said is, like, God, please don't let me have to use the toilet in front of all these people. Like, 
that's all I thought about. Like, oh, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I didn't care about the other stuff. I just didn't want to have to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was a, that said to me, like I had a little moment where I said, oh, you might want to be thinking about something else. But I'm like, I couldn't picture what I wanted to be thinking about, but I just knew that I didn't want to use the toilet in front of other people. So I went on my merry way, and um, I got sent to like a, drunk driving class, and so we used to drink at the break um, <laughs> and then drive home. You know, they didn't take away your license back then. You paid a $1,000 fine, and on you went on your merry way. So, um, But I was sentenced to Alcoholics Anonymous for, I had to do like 10 meetings in like six months or something. And I went there, and there was a guy there, and he's like, hey, if you sign my card, I sign yours. I'm like, great, let's do it, you know? And so we signed each other's cards, and that was the extent of my exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. And meanwhile, I'm working in this cafe, and this lady comes in all the time. She's a really, really sweet lady, little redhead lady, really happy. And she would say the weirdest things to me. She'd say, like, I know where my car was parked last night. And I'd be like, good for you. Like, okay. <laughs> And she'd say, like, I know what I did last night. And I'd be like, okay. I have no idea what went down, but okay, great, you know. But she started just talking to me. She would throw out little things like that. She's, you know, my life is so good today. And I'd be like, bitch, you know, but whatever, you know. But um, she would just drop little things like that. And she was very, uh, very kind, very, um, very loving to me. And I didn't know her from Adam, you know. And... Uh, one day, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I had alcohol poisoning. But because I was in undergrad and because I had a kid and because I was working, I had to go to work. Like I couldn't just like call off, beg off, I had to go. And so I'm shaking, sweating, you know, running to the restroom to throw up. And um, I say to her, she's like, are you okay? And I say to her, I think I might have a problem with drinking. And she says, yeah, I know. She didn't say, oh my God, not you. She didn't say, no. She said, yeah, I know. And I said, I don't know what to do. She's like, let me take you to a meeting. And I'm like, whoa, what? Wait, what's the meeting? Like, are you taking me to Amway? What's happening? You know, I <laughs> wasn't really sure what was going to go down. So she took me to this meeting uh, in Laguna. And when I got there, people were taking birthdays. There was a lady dying of cancer, and she talked about that. And I thought, whoa, this is too much for me. But some lady took a cake for like 12 years, and someone took a cake for 20 years. And I thought, 12 years, 20 years, I just want to know how I'm not going to drink tonight when I go home and sit in my house. But I, I have no idea how that's going to happen. I have no idea how to go home, swear to God, every day, every morning that I'm not going to drink. And then at 6 o'clock, I go in and pop that bottle of vodka because that was the dilemma of my disease. I couldn't not drink. I couldn't. No matter how much I didn't want to, I couldn't do it. And uh, she said, you know what? I'll tell you what. Why don't you go home tonight not drink tonight. Someone will pick you up in the morning for a meeting. Someone will pick you up at noon for a meeting. And someone will pick you up tomorrow night for a meeting. And all you have to do is not drink between those meetings. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. Maybe I could not drink for four hours. Maybe I could do that. And I'd call her, and I'm like, you know, it's nine. I don't know what to do. She'd be like, go to bed. I'd be like, okay, you know, like, because I didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. And I'd call in the morning. I'd be like, what do I do? She's like, why don't you pack your daughter a lunch and take her to school and do that sober? Well, that hadn't happened in a while. So I thought, okay, I can, maybe I can do that. You know, so, so I did that. And then I'd call her when I'd come back, and I'd be like, what do I do now? You know, 
we went to a meeting and now I've got four more hours. What do I do? She's like, why don't you clean your closet out? I'd be like, I don't want to do that. She'd be like, why don't you do it anyway? And so I'd clean my closet out and I'd call her back. I'd go, what are you doing now? She's like, why don't you scrub the kitchen floor on your hands and knees? And while you're down there, why don't you say a prayer? Well, I don't want to do that. She's like, well, do it anyway. And I did. And what she was trying to do was keep my mind occupied. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a, I, I'm a daily thinker. I think every day. You know, and I think of great, amazing shit. I mean, crap to do and think all day long. I think of that. And I have to tell you, in the 29 and a half years that I've been sober, I have never called a sponsor and go, I have this idea, and her go, oh my God, that's fantastic, you should do that. <laughs> never has happened, ever. Just want you to know. So what I realized is I have to run my thinking past everybody. You know, and, um, and, and I didn't mind doing that because I knew deep down inside that something wasn't right. Like it was so skewed that I knew that, that I needed something I was willing to do anything. I was willing to let someone else run my life because obviously I couldn't run my own life, you know. And I have this precious child that was with me and, you know, and she didn't want to live with me anymore and I had to try and kind of fix that and I didn't know what to do and, you know, so I was willing to do whatever. And she told me as long as I stay willing, things are going to happen. So I said, okay. And so um, when I had eight days of sobriety, I was feeling good. I'd stopped peeing blood. I was eating every day, three meals a day. I was keeping food down. It felt good. My daughter didn't, you know, she looked good. Things, she was going to school every day. Things were good. And uh, I decided I could probably just have a beer. And a beer really isn't drinking because it's a beer, right? So I went down to Fred's Liquor on Victoria and St. Clemente, Fred, and I uh, went down there. And they used to sell beer in bottles, in a big bottle. And um, I bought a big bottle of beer, and I... The guy, I, you know, looked down to grab my money out of my pocket. He had put it in a bag for me, and I went home. And I was just going to have a beer. And when I got home, it was a bottle of lemonade. But I know what I purchased that day. I know what I put on the counter. And it wasn't there when I left. And the thought dawned on me that God had intervened on my behalf. And that maybe, just maybe, I should stay on this side of the street. Because I don't know how often the universes line up where you can leave one side of the street and come to the other. I don't know how often that happens, but it happened for me that night. And so I made a decision to stay over here on this side of the street. And I called my sponsor and I said, I think I'm ready to do this. And I had eight days sober. She's like, fantastic. Let's get started. And I think that that's ultimately the, the bottom line. You have to be ready and you have to be willing. And she would always tell me, willingness is the key that unlocks all the doors. All the doors will be unlocked the minute you become willing. So I was willing. And, um, you know, we went, uh, I had eight days, and she said, I want you to find somebody with one day of sobriety, and I want you to tell them how you stayed sober for eight days. And then I want you to find someone who has 10 days of sobriety, and I want, I want you to listen to how they stayed sober for 10 days. And I want you to take that one person who has one day, and I want you to take them to a meeting. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And from that, I started building a fellowship. I had people in front of me 30 days, which is a phenomenally long period of time, phenomenally long, to not drink, if you drank like I did. And I had people with less time than me, and we had each other's hands, and we just hung out. And we had, we had a lot of fun. You know, We started doing stuff together. And my sponsor was like, that's fantastic. Now we have work to do. And I was like, okay. And uh, she, did, you know, she did the first step with me. And... Um, 
you know, I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And I was like, well, you know, tell me what you mean by unmanageable because I'm not sure I understand that. And she laid out, and what she had me do was she had me write out a timeline from my first drink and what happened to the last drink and what happened. And she's like, why don't you read that out loud to me? Now, there's something about reading your writing out loud about the course of your life that somehow works differently than when you just think about it. And uh, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, maybe you might be right. I don't know. Maybe my life is a little unmanageable. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, yeah. But uh, she's like, when you're ready, when you, when you can accept that, let me know. Because really, unmanageability is that, those, was that bedevilment for me. Those bedevilments were how my life was unmanageable. I could go to school. I could go to work. I could be at home. But I had no functioning life outside of that. I had no emotional connectivity. I couldn't, I could not sit in a room with you without crawling out of my skin, wishing that I could just have a drink. So I knew that that part, that my life had become unmanageable, and I was willing to do whatever she said. And she said, well, let, you know, let's just surrender at this moment. And, and I was willing to do that. And then, um, you know, we did the second step, and um, when we did the second step, it talks about, you know, that I was willing to have someone restore me to sanity. And I said, well, I'm not insane. And uh, we had a really... I like asking a lot of questions when I was newly sober. Um, and a lot of that is just because I was confused and scared. And I didn't know what I wanted to hear. So I, I always asked a lot of questions. I had a lot of pushback. And, um, and I was so grateful for my sponsor because she'd just sit and have chats with me. You know, we could, we could have these deep theological discussions about nothing. But she'd do it, you know. And uh, she said, you know, insanity, if you look it up in the dictionary, it talks about making choices of sound mind of wholeness, making choices based on the truth. She's like, if we look at your life, do you think that you've made choices based on truth? And the, truth, the answer was no, I've made choices based on what worked for me and my selfishness and my, my self-centeredness and fear. That's all my choices were. All my actions were reactions to fearful situations, anxiety, depression, all of it. You know. And when you have to look at your life like that, it's a little overwhelming. And uh, she would pick me up and just say, you know, it's okay because things are just going to get better from here as long as you stay. So I was, you know, I just, I had hope. I had a little bit of hope that maybe something could be different. Uh, so uh, meanwhile, I'm running around Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, she made sure I stayed in the middle. And then she told me, you know, that I have to start being a service. And I said, well, you know, I picked so-and-so up. And she's like, great, and I want you to have a commitment. So I, I got a commitment. And we had a couple commitments. But meanwhile, my fellowship was growing, and um, I went to the, you know, I was young, I had a broke, I had a kid, and there was a meeting on Tuesday night that served hot dogs and a drink, and I could feed my child and have a meeting for like two bucks. So we were there, you know, and I met this guy, and we started hanging out, and, uh, you know, my sponsor never ever said to me, you can't be, like, I never had any of that, you can't do this, you can't, she never said that. She goes, you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to pay the consequences, good or bad. So if you want to do this, let's do it. But, you know, if there's consequences, you've got to be willing to pay them. And they could be good or they could be bad. You have to decide. And I was like, ah, I'll pay it. Because <laughs> that's how I am. So now, you know, now I've got a boyfriend, and uh, we're hanging out, and life is good, and I do my third step. And um, see, for me, I hear a lot of people say this, that, um, you know, when they heard the word God, they wanted to run from the room, and that makes me profoundly sad. Because when I heard the word God, I, was, I felt at home. I felt like, oh, good. 
I'm here. I finally, God finally found me because I felt so lost out there. And um, what I knew was that there was a God and um, our higher power that I choose to call God. And that I kind of felt like maybe he was trying to kill me. And that he and I had been in a big fat fight for like eight years and we hadn't been speaking. And this was my opportunity in the third step to, uh, to, to have a connection. And she's like, you know what? God's not mad at you. And um, I carried that thought with me, and it's so overwhelming to me. I carried the thought that God loves you more than me and that he doesn't care for me for 28 years. And um, I started working with a new sponsor about a year ago, maybe less, I don't know, whatever the timeline is. But um, what she said to me was that, um, that uh, well, she forces me to trust God in ways that I never have before. And we read We Agnostics together. And it changed my perception. And really, that's all, that's all it can do is change your perception. And with that, my actions changed. And for the first time in my life, I don't believe that God loves you any more than he loves me, ever. That, you know, whatever separates me from that third step is all based on this, this brain thinking every day and the things that come out of my mouth, you know. And that if I want to stay connected, I'm going to have to start changing how some of this works. And I was able to, to start doing that this year. And what I started doing, uh, what my first sponsor had me do is whenever I heard someone talk about a miracle in their life, I'd write it down. And I could see God at work constantly all around me. And if he's working all around me, he has to be working for me. You know, people would just tell me the smallest miracles in their life. And the fact that I wasn't drinking now for like 30 days, that was a miracle. That's a miracle. And I'd write that down, you know. And somebody would stay sober through the death of a spouse. I'd write that down because if my spouse ever died or I murdered him, then I'd know who to go to, you know. Um, you know, then I'd know how to stay sober. Um, someone lost their job. They stayed sober. I write their name and phone number down, and I know that they stayed sober. And if that ever happens to me, I know who I'm going to call. So I have a little resource book of people that I know are doing the deal, you know, and I connect with them and just check on them, you know. And, and that all came out of the third step, this connection, this willingness to connect. And I know a lot of people say, oh, I was going to do a four step, and I was terrified. Not me. I wanted someone to hear my side of the damn story. Like, it was, it was amazing. I was, like, so stoked to do a fourth because finally someone was going to sit down with me and go, oh, my God, no wonder. You know, this is, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. This is crap. You know, and I was like, fantastic, let's do it. And so she's like, do your four-step. I called her the next day. Boom, here you go. I'm ready. And she's like, what? Okay. She's like, how many pages you got there? I'm like, 10. She's like, oh, God. All right. So we, I came over, and I did my four-step, and we wrote out all the stuff. And I was like, did you see this? Did you see this? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I see it. And then she's like, let's do this other column over here that talks about disregarding the other person altogether and talks about just you. And I'm like, but wait, did you see this over here? Did you see what they did over here? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see it. I see it. We're good. But let's go over here. And so I sat down, and I'm like, this is the most stupidest thing I've ever done. Like, <laughs> I do not understand what just happened here, but okay. So again, I had to draw on that willingness, because until that moment, I truly believed that things happened to me. I truly believed that. I truly believed that I was just a mere victim walking down the street. Something would come at me. I truly, in my heart, and I still have pieces of that in me today, you know. And after doing that other column, again, my perception changed. Again, I was 
saw the unmanageability of my life. Again, I saw how I was removed from reality. And it just changed enough to where I was willing, again, to do something just a little bit different. Like maybe not say that one thing you want to say. Maybe, you know, maybe say the thing you don't want to say. Because right now, that's what I have to work on, is saying the thing I don't want to say, you know? Um, so I was willing, I was able to kind of get through that fourth and fifth and, and come out, a, you know, people are like, oh, I felt like the angels and the heavens opened up. I didn't feel that way, but I felt aware. I felt anew, and I felt like things could be different, and that's all I ever wanted is things just to be a little different, you know? And meanwhile, I'm taking down all these notes about God working in my life, and, and he's all around me, and I'm excited about it, and, um, you know, I had this moment of clarity. Um, I was uh, sitting, the warm sun was hitting me, and um, I had done a fifth step, and I didn't have this huge elation, but um, there was this moment where I was in God's presence, and God was, and I, I was in God's presence, and God was in my presence, and it was the most beautiful, profound moment I've ever had. Nothing, nothing big had preceded it, nothing big uh, proceeded it, it was just a moment. And at that moment I knew that I, that, I w that things were going to be different, and I was excited about that. I wanted things to be different. Meanwhile, my kid's healing. You know, we're doing well. Uh, life is getting better. I married, oh, no, I hadn't married the guy yet, but, um, you know, so when we do, you know, so from that fifth, I was able to do a sixth and a seventh, and, um, you know, my sponsor said, you're so amazing because you have this little wagon full of character defects that you just drag around with you and then you pull one out and beat people with it and then you put it back and drag your little wagon to the next situation. And I was like, okay. But you know what happened is I would write things down and she'd be like, oh, I'd write something down. She'd be like, oh, we call that selfishness. Write that down next to it. I'd be like, okay. And then I'd tell her something else. She goes, oh, we call that self-righteousness. Write that down next to it. And so what she did is she gave me words for the thoughts and ideas I was having because I didn't know what they were. And you can't change anything if you don't know what it is. So here she had given me this list, and I understood now that this behavior or this thought is all about selfishness, self-seeking, and fear. And so from that, I was able to kind of draw from it. And, and I said, well, you know, how does that change? And she said, you know, you just do the exact opposite of whatever you want to do. Like, if you think that's a great idea, do the exact opposite. You know, and she's like, eventually, if you can do that one out of ten times, you're making progress. And eventually you'll do it twice out of 10 times. And then eventually you'll do it three out of 10 times and eventually you'll change. And I thought that was so easy and so amazing. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, to, to catch yourself and be like, oh, you're not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And she said, when you're confused and you don't know what to do, go help somebody. Go call somebody. Call another alcoholic and see, ask them how they're doing and don't say a word about yourself. It's like, okay. And so that was now part of my repertoire, along with the, the people I was hanging out with and the, bringing up the newcomer and hanging out with the old-timer and taking a commitment, you know. And uh, by this time, um, I was dating the guy I met. You know, we were starting to get, like, a little serious, kind of. And, and uh, you know, he's in the programs. So it was really nice. And we were starting to build this new life, and it was great, you know, and things were good. And, and, um, and you know, there's still, I mean, a lot of people, you know, uh, well, I don't want to say a lot of people, but there's this thought that um, just because you do, the 12, you do all 12 steps, things are going to just be perfect. But, you know, life happens. 
and I hear the term life on life's terms, and my sponsor and I were talking about this a lot. Can I, it's not so much life on life's terms for me, it's can I accept life's on life's terms? Can I accept it? Because things still happen, things still go on, and it's just life, you know? But now I'm, I'm feeling equipped to handle it. I'm feeling like for the first time in my life, I'm not lost or scared. And I, I can tell you about my upbringing, but it doesn't make a difference. Because the minute I took a drink of alcohol, I was an alcoholic. I loved it. I drank because it silenced this brain, and it made me feel okay. And the minute I was in oblivion, everything was perfect. So it wouldn't matter where I came from. All I know is that alcohol had worked for me for a while, and it stopped working. It turned on me, you know? So it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you are. You're an alcoholic. You know, it's what we do. To cope, I drank to cope, you know, and I enjoyed it until I couldn't enjoy it anymore, you know. Um, so then uh, I'm doing my eighth and ninth step, and she sends me out to make amends, and I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. <laughs> F those people. I'm not doing it. Because I still felt to a large degree that I was, I was not to blame for a lot of stuff that went down. And she's like, well, call me when you're ready, and she hung up on me. And she's the sweetest person on earth. She'd never done that, anything like that to me before, ever. And I didn't, and I sat on that for a long time. And she had, ended up kicking me loose. She was like, sorry, I can't help you. Until you're willing, I just cannot help you. And uh, I was like, well, I'm not doing it. She's like, great, don't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt my life at all if you don't do it. It just hurts your life. I was like, I'm fine. She's like, great, see you later. Great, see you later. And that's kind of how that went down. But... Um, <coughs> So now into this, um, I had I sat on that until I had five years of sobriety. And um, meanwhile, I'd gotten married. Now, if you think you don't have character defects, get married. <laughs> it's so much fun to find out <laughs> what's really wrong with you once you get married. Because things intensify. You know, you're now in an intimate relationship and things just intensify. And... Uh, I was at a meeting and I was talking to this lady and I said, you know, my life sucks. It's, you know, and I listed off the bedevilments without really realizing I had listed them. And she's like, God, that's terrible. You should just drink. There's no reason to be sober and live like that. And I said, well, I don't know what to do. She goes, let's work the steps. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm willing to do it. And she became my sponsor and we did all the, 12, we did all, all the steps again. Same awakening, same awarenesses, a little bit more growth. Got to that eight and nine step. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. She's like, you know what? You have to. You just have to. She's like, just do one and call me tomorrow. And I did one. And then I did two. And then I did three. And the next thing you know, I'd gotten through my list. You know, she just kind of piecemealed me through it. And, uh, um, you know, there's this moment in the night that I experienced so much. And that was just like this, this, this sense of forgiveness flowing back and forth and how beautiful it is. And until you do it, I can't explain it to you. But it's the one thing that allowed me to open up, because you see, I'm here for the cash and prizes. I'm here for you. I'm here to connect with you. I'm here to be with you. I'm here to help you be, have a little bit, just a little bit of something different. And until I could do that, I couldn't connect with you in that way. You know, and I don't want to miss out anymore. So when my sponsor says I need to make amends today, I'm like, yeah, you're right, I do, let's do it. You know, because I'm not willing to rest this, risk this connectivity that we can have. Does that mean I don't have opinions about things? Absolutely not. Does it mean I don't mess up? Absolutely not. All it means is that I'm willing today 
should you approach me or should I have to approach you, that I'm not afraid of that anymore, you know, that, that I can do this. And uh, that led me to the 10th, 11th, and 12th step. And, um, you know, a lot of people say it's the maintenance steps. I could not disagree more with that. It is the vital lifeblood of this program to do 10 and 11 and 12, to be constantly aware, to be constantly taking opposite action, to beat it to God and to serve another human being. Those are the things that keep me sober. It's no different than when I first got here. Um, in closing, I just want to read this little piece from the big book in the back. Um, I know it's corny, but it's on page 267, but this pretty much sums up my life. It says, I'm rated as, as a modestly successful man. My stock of material goods isn't great, but I have a fortune in friendships, courage, self-assurance, and honest appraisal of my own abilities. Above all, I have gained the greatest thing accorded to any man, the love and the understanding of a gracious God who has lifted me from the alcoholic scrap heap to a position of trust, where I'm able to reap the rich rewards that come from showing just a little love for others and for serving them as I can. Thank you for letting me share.